This week on Punch Mountain, Happy New Year! I hope your New Year's gown converts into a fun little short set because we're taking on water. Please take this and give it to my grandson because we're watching the Poseidon Adventure. Punch Mountain starts now. Welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. What else? Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm joined as always by the podcast lion himself, David Hotta. David, how are you? I'm good. Tearing through the jungle. Uh, like a lion does of the podcast world. How are you, Mac Blake? I'm doing good. I was about to call you a podcast lion in winter because it's winter time still. But then I think that actually means you're close to the end of your life. But that's not untrue either. <laughs> Having just celebrated my birthday. As your Christmas card said, closer to the end than the beginning. So it goes. So, but now this is going to be our New Year's episode. Happy New Year, Mac Blake. Yes, David. Happy New Year. Last episode was our Christmas episode, Driver. Wait, did that take place during... Did he steal Christmas? Yes, he was he was a Grinch-type character, and Bruce Dern was like, I'm going to get those presents back. Ah, uh, okay, wait, so hold on. So Bruce Dern was on Team Santa? Bruce Dern was the good guy in this movie. That's fine. I don't, you know, I'll have to go back and, and re-listen to our last episode. This is New Year's uh, Day in this movie, David, which we're about to watch, The Poseidon Adventure, takes place on New Year's Eve slash day, right? That's right, yeah, since... We released an episode on Thanksgiving and had no mention of Thanksgiving, and we released an episode near Christmas, and I commandeered that one for my birthday. I was like, well, shoot, let's do something to commemorate one of these goddamn holidays. So what's an easier slam dunk than to do a New Year's Eve action movie? Yeah. David, is this an action movie? Let's talk about it. What are your opening thoughts about the Poseidon adventure? It's an adventure movie, and I know that's going to be splitting hairs, but it feels like it feels like if we do any sort of movie pre-1972, I think, the you know, I know obviously there were action movies before this, but they also kind of feel like adventure movies where it's just like Robin Hood's having a rollicking good time or Ben-Hur's trampling slaves or something like that. So we're going to have to discern between what an action movie is and what an adventure movie is. But all I know is that it's been two weeks now of PG movies. It's been The Driver last week and it's The Poseidon Adventure this week. And that's two weeks in a row that I have not seen someone getting beaten with their own amputeed arm. So I'm ready for some hot R-rated action after this. Well, David, this was that 1970s PG, right? Because, you know, this is back when, like, PG's like, okay, it could show a little bush, but no cock and balls. That's, that's PG. <laughs> Before the uh, Temple of Doom ruined it for everybody. That's right. Ruined it for everybody. That's right. We could have seen Shaft in uh, Temple of Doom if not for the MPAA. You're talking about with the Richard Roundtree detective character? Or are you talking yeah, about... Yeah, that's right. Okay. W- yeah. Was, there, was there something else I could have been talking about? No, 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 no. Okay, thank God. Yeah, David. So last week we did The Driver, which was kind of a different sort of action movie for us because, you know, it was a lot of like car chase action, whereas we're, you know, kind of used to punch, punch, kick, kick action. Hence the name of the show, Punch Mountain. And so this week we're doing... A disaster movie, which is is kind of a different style of action. You know, it's not like, you know, in the movie Volcano, it's not like the volcano uh, picked up an M16 and tried to shoot Tommy Lee Jones. You know, he just basically had to get away from it. And so I was like, yes, Poseidon Adventure, let's do it. This will be another good expansion of what it means to be a uh, an action movie. And then we watched this thing, and then I don't know if this is an action movie. <laughs> <laughs> but tell you what, the mountain giveth we shall not returneth we're gonna talk about the poseidon adventure as an action movie on this episode and if you don't like it 
Uh, I heard today's daily is extra depressing. So you can listen to Michael <laughs> Bababaro. Michael Babar- Michael Babaro. Uh, Babaro the Elephant, yes. I like Michael Babaro. He talks so fast sometimes. I occasionally look at my phone to see if I accidentally pressed the button to make it go at one and a, and a half speed, mm-hmm. which uh, I have done in the past because I'm, I'm clumsy with my, my fingers. David, before we celebrate the new year by getting trapped on an upside-down cruise ship, Let's get trapped on a different kind of ship. Friendship, David. But we're still trapped. How are you? I'm happy to be trapped with you, Mac, as we wrap up 2022. So yeah, I mean, I guess this is going to be the last show of the year. So give yourself a grade. How do you think you did this past year? Oh, uh, <laughs> oh God. Uh, great. I did great. David. There's no filibustering on the show, Mac. You can't just uh, avoid the question. If I cry enough, the episode will end, David. That is. Do you want to have a cry off? Do you want to go out to the king on this one? Uh, you know what? I feel like I did all right, all things considered. And there was a lot to consider this year. But something happened to me today that was weird. I feel like this is this is really not a problem. You know what I mean? Here comes some real thin soup complaining. Every time I go to like a Target or my local grocery store, that the shopping carts, uh, I guess at night somebody comes and just hits them with an aluminum bat because it's impossible to find one that does not squeak or have a bump or that just veers or just basically breaks as soon as you touch it. Mm. Today I went to a different grocery store and I used a car. It must have been a new cart, David, because the ride on this baby was smooth. Oh, my goodness. This thing was well-oiled or whatever, and it threw me. Like Speaking of boats, Poseidon Adventure – You've ever been on a boat and then you get on dry land for a second? You're like, oh, I'm not constantly rocking anymore. It was like yeah. that. I just like I started veering to the like left, and it's like, no, the cart is not. Do- I am doing this. So it's just a habit thing. It's a muscle memory of like, okay, I know I'm going to grab this cart and I'm going to be hooking a left real quick. So let me just go ahead and compensate for that. Yes, exactly. It, it is kind of like in the old Looney Tunes cartoons where there was a real uh, muscle duck that was constantly uh, cucking uh, Daffy, and so what Daffy decided to do was blow up some balloons and paint them to look like weights. Mm-hmm. And so then when the strongman duck, you know, oh, like brace himself and like hunkered down to lift those huge, because it was balloons, he shot into the sky, right? Mm-hmm. That's what happened to me. I killed two people today, David. Oh, golly. Again? Yeah. But the guy in the grocery store is an old friend. So he said, go ahead and talk about it in your podcast. There ain't no statute of limitations if there ain't no bodies. He said, wink, wink, don't buy the meat there. All right. David, in the ill-fated words of 99% of the passengers of the USS Poseidon, uh, are we going in? Uh, Mac, we're going in. Oh, I don't like this boat. <laughs> David, what is your history with the Poseidon Adventure? Have you seen this thing before? I've got a long history with oh. this movie. In fact, it might be one of the first movies I've ever seen, if I'm really putting a brain on it, because this was one, this was one of those Channel 13 local ABC affiliate, the KTRK 3 p.m. million dollar movie. This was what I would watch when I came home from school. So while other kids were learning about the Ninja Turtles or the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, I was learning about the China Syndrome or I was watching The Jerk. And so The Poseidon Adventure was just one of those movies in heavy rotation. And so it really is like one of the earliest movies I remember seeing. And so it is stuck in my mind as this kind of thrilling action movie. Because again, I watched it probably when I was six or seven years old or something like that. So of course it's going to be a thrilling action movie to a six or seven year old. Uh, So watching it now through the lens of several years of experience, it holds a different meaning to me entirely. And I'm looking forward to dissecting it. But, uh, but Mac, do you have a history with the Poseidon adventure? What's your history with this one? A familiar barely with it, right? Like I, I know the premise of the movie, like Poseidon adventure, right? Boat goes upside down. And I feel like I've seen scenes of it or whatever on TV here and there, but I've never, 
I had yet to sit down and watch the, the it all the way through. I do know that like just looking at the date of the release date of the Poseidon Adventure. And let me ask you, maybe you know more than me. Was this the movie that kind of like started that wave of like star-studded disaster films? I know Airport came out like two years before this, but then after this, it was like Earthquake, Towering Inferno, and others. Yeah, it feels like the disaster movie in some form or some big spectacle movie existed every few years or so. You might get one, but then with when Airport came out in '70, you're right. Yeah, that sort of planted the seed, and then the Poseidon Adventure was like the the real big hit. I mean, it was nominated for Oscars. It it paved the way for the Towering Inferno, which was nominated for Best Picture when it finally came out. So yeah, I think this was the one that sort of, it's the one that popularized it. It's the one that kind of kicked off the trend. You know, I, I try not to do a lot of research before I see the movie. I save it for after because I kind of want to go in as fresh as possible. But, uh, I, you know, after watching it, I was doing, you know, looking around. Of course, like the sets for this thing are insane, right? Like they took an actual boat and the sets are pretty much like exact replicas of the boat, but upside down. The nuttiest thing to me is that this movie wrapped up two days ahead of schedule, I believe. <laughs> Imagine a movie with like water sets, right? Wrapping up ahead of schedule. That seems nuts. Like now for movies to be released on time, I think you have to like uh, sacrifice at least 10 to 25 uh, digital animators, right? I think to all those Avengers movies, they like burn them out like husks. So for the fact that, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's a secret carpenter graveyard that's, uh, you know, populated by people who worked on this movie. I sure hope not. But uh, hats off to you, director, whose name I forget, Joe Poseidon. There it is. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Any movie that has to deal with the elements at all, whether they're out in the desert or whether they're out in the water, you always hear about them being millions over budget. You hear about them taking, you know, months at a time. For this to come two days under, uh, you know, it. I almost wish they had kind of had a little bit of hardship and a little bit of tragedy. And let's see it on the screen. You know what I mean? This seems, This feels a little too easy in retrospect. You know, this movie got remade a couple times. I think one of the remakes was just called Poseidon. Take a step back, and you got to give it to the producers of this movie for calling it the Poseidon Adventure. Think about what other movies would benefit just from having the word adventure tacked onto the title. Almost all of them. Let's give it a try. Okay, sure. Baby Driver Adventure. I, well, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Actually, that one kind of needed, uh, you know what? If you say Baby Driver Adventure, that, that driver needs to be a fucking baby. That feels like the overseas poster. That feels like the <laughs> translation for it. Uh, Mac, would you go see the Batman adventure? Didn't I feel like I, if I have it, I, I definitely want to. I feel like that's what uh, one of those Schumacher Batman movie could have movies could have been called. I just bought us two tickets for the Suspiria adventure. Does that sound good? That sounds good and hot. Yeah, I'm in. That sounds like false advertising. I don't know if I'd call that. Anyway. All right, David, well, just a level set here. Why don't you give people the back of the box description? Oh, my goodness. That's a fancy box. Yeah, it's it's a you know it's a special commemorative edition. It commemorates uh, the existence of Nani in this movie. This is the uh, Poseidon Adventure Quit Your Bitch and Nani edition, and it's uh, it's got an extra hour of footage of Nani uh, complaining and and not being able to do the the smallest of tasks. So it's really it's a good deep dive for fans of the one character of ten, Nani. This movie is available to stream on most streaming platforms, but I didn't realize I actually own a copy. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's right here. It's one of my uh, Gene Hackman hack packs. It's the uh, 10 hack films for all you hack maniacs out there. And uh, yeah, it was right in the middle. It's great. How about that? Yeah. Very cool. The only bad news about this hack pack, David, is that five of the movies are Welcome to Mooseport. I don't know why. Oh, gosh. I know. I think they're really trying to unload some copies of Welcome to Mooseport on this thing. Well, can I see the distributor? Can you hold that up? Can I see the distributor? Uh, Sure. Mm, here you go. Uh 
It's Mooseport Films, Mac. They're trying to unload copies. Oh, I got to put it down. Oh, God. <laughs> Why are those Mooseport discs so heavy? Well, you've got that moose shoulder that the doctor told you to watch out for. That's true, David. She did tell me that. Your doctor's a woman? <laughs> yeah. Well, why is that so surprising, David? It was the, no, it was just, the answer that to that is, riddle it, I've been plaguing you with. It exposes my sexism. Yes. Perilous Adventure on the Open Sea. The most successful escape film of all time. This classic sea adventure details the desperate effort of 10 survivors to escape from an ocean liner capsized by a huge wave created by an earthquake. <laughs> Did you need all that? Did you need all that back of the well, box, writer? Well, just in case, you're like, well, how, where'd this big wave come from? Uh, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of little oh, okay. in there. Ten survivors escaped from an ocean liner. How? By a huge wave? How? Created by an earthquake. Okay. Death and destruction are everywhere as the ten survivors struggle to fight their way through the inverted ship. This brilliant film combines suspenseful terror at sea and reveals the victim's intimate and personal stories. The distinguished talents of 15 Academy Award winners are featured in this most unique enterprise of its kind. That's a weird sentence. 1972, 117 minutes, directed by Ronald Neem, rated PG. You know, something I did not look up was what else Ronald Neem has done. So what else did he direct, David? Any, anything of note? Uh, the Prime of Miss Jean Brody and Meteor. Okay. And uh, he did Hopscotch, which I like. Anything that I would know? No. Okay. Oh, Gambit. Is that the movie starring a Gambit? That's not the no. Uh, that's that was. He was created twenty years after this movie was. Made. All right, David. How does this movie begin? This movie opens with no title card. We just see the establishing shot of the Poseidon on what we learn is its final voyage from New York to Athens on New Year's Eve. This is where we also learn the voyage is met with disaster, and there were only a handful of survivors. Well, I guess we could put this disc back in the mail. Yeah. At first, that little note about. Most of the people died here with a survivor story. I was like, that's, uh, did I need to know that right up top? It seems like you could have just played that a little bit closer to your vest. So already this is a weird start because, like I said, no title card. And it's got the little, you know, well, it's got a title card where it says, this is the, you know, the story of the survivors, that sort of thing. Mac, are we to believe this is a documentary? Follow-up question. Are we to believe this is some sort of Blair Witch type documentary? I don't know, David. But to be honest with you, I did look it up right in that very moment. I was like, I thought this was a... Because another credit was based on a novel, which, first of all, I think it's always funny when premise movies are based on novels. It, like, you know, we watched Cliffhanger the other day. Like, <laughs> that was based on a concept, which seems about right. You know what I mean? Hey, they should make Die Hard on a Mountain. Okay, done. Yeah, like when you're a kid and you find out Die Hard 2 is based on a book called 52 Minutes. It's like, it's Die Hard 2. What could be in this book? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But good for you. Uh, I forget the name of whoever wrote it. May your name live on in fame forever. But yeah, I was confused. I was like, is, is this based on a real story? I looked it up. No, it is not. But first of all, I know that this boat is probably a model. In fact, I, I know, I think I looked up as like a 20-foot model, which is insane. Hmm. But the opening shots of this boat, yikes. Like, you, you expect like the opening shot to be like, oh, look at this new beautiful boat. Maybe I got Titanic syndrome where I'm just thinking about that movie. But right away, you're like, this is a bad, I got a bad feeling about this boat because it's shot during this uh, heavy storm and at night and it's, oh, is it at night? No, it's during the day. Well, okay. We could talk about that here in a little bit because the first five minutes weather-wise make no goddamn sense at all. Yeah. Basically, my first opening thought about this boat is, yikes, that's a, not a good feeling about that boat. In the opening credits, you, you do see the words, Leslie Nielsen as the captain, to which I said, hell yeah, out loud, because I did not know that. Yes, I was uh, watching it with someone and they were like, oh, is this supposed to be a comedy? And I was like, 
No, but again, like probably the first 20, 30 minutes, I had a hard time steering them away from the idea that this was a comedy. <laughs> I got some solid laughs in this movie, which we'll talk about later on. So from there, uh, we're introduced to Robin, played by Eric Shea, young little Robin, making his way through a seemingly endless rainstorm to reach the wheelhouse of the ship. Uh, it's a real bad time, Robin. You probably shouldn't be doing this right now. But the captain, played by the always old, even when he's young, Leslie Nielsen, is getting an earful from his chief engineer about pump issues, all while the main investor, Lenarcos, is standing there for a very awkward moment. Yeah, the fuck that guy, Lenarcos, as we'll learn later. But yes, we're opening, this is the opening scene, right? And they're already like, this boat's in trouble. <laughs> like, again, Titanic was working well for a while, but this boat from the get-go, we're, we're fucked, guys. It also sets like a, a bad precedent because, yeah, we're two minutes into this movie and it's already peril. We're watching this kid, you know, brave through a storm. And then it's 20 more minutes before we get any other sort of action. So this, this feels a little misleading. But we do meet Lenarcos for the first time, played by Fred Sadoff. And Mac, we got a, we had this last week with glasses from the driver. We have it this week. We really need to start keeping tally of notable actors whose IMDb picks are from the movie that we're watching. Because this is another guy. You look up uh, Fred Sadoff, and there he is as Lenarcos in The Poseidon Adventure. So while we're checking in on the captain, Robin makes his way to the, to the wheelhouse. And he and the captain flirt about wave size for a little bit. Then there's this brief clip from Airplane that feels out of place where the boat tips and everyone comically leans over. Again, I had to convince the people I was watching this with that this is not a comedy. But it turns out the Poseidon is top heavy and the captain demands that at the next stop, they will take on more ballast. David, if I was watching this movie for entertainment, I would hear that word ballast and go, oh yeah, ballast, uh, it's some boat thing. David, this is the podcast for bringing information to the people. I went ahead and I was like, you know what? I'm going to look up exactly what ballast means. Ballast. One of the most feared bounty hunters in the galaxy, Bosk uses his natural Trandoshan hunting instincts to capture his prey. During the Clone Wars, the red-eyed reptilian part of no. the... What? What was what, what it, David? I feel like you looked up the wrong thing. You looked up Bosk. Oh, no! The, the bounty hunter. Damn yeah. it. Oh, here we go. Ballast. Heavy materials such as gravel, sand, iron, or lead placed low on a vessel to improve its stability. The hull had insufficient ballast. Yeah, so he's just adding weight, which is... You know, I'm glad they chose ballast because if he's like... At the next stop, we're adding more weight. It doesn't quite have the same punch. That's the key to nautical terms. They sound good. But David, then we go below deck because all the rock and roll in this boat is doing. It's having a negative effect on some of the boat's passengers. We're introduced to ex-cop Mike Rogo and his wife Linda, played by Ernest Borgnine and Stella Stevens, as the ship's doctor checks in on everyone experiencing seasickness, which Linda is. Mike has a hard time believing it's seasickness, which is weird because I never would have suspected a cop to lack empathy and basic perception skills, David. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Finally, we're getting to meet some of the passengers of the ship. And what better way to start than with the Lockhorns? This newly married couple who just won't stop yelling and they won't stop yelling for the entire movie and to the point where we really don't care if they live or die toward the end. Yeah. Let's talk about Ernie Borgnine here. Always excited to see him. Uh, he's uh, He definitely adds something to the movie. But yeah, he is fucking loud in this scene already his energy is like this he can't keep this up but he does so linda rogo was seasick and the doctor gave her some pills mike rogo or his borg nine i'm gonna call him uh, rogo nine rogo nine is like epileptic at these pills like you're just gonna give her pills and then it's like you want me to cram them down her throat she can't even swallow and then the nurse is like oh there's suppositories what are suppositories you know the wife is like i know what they are do you think in the 1970s when they played this movie, the audiences, man, they just must have been rolling in the aisles at that line, right? Just falling out of their seats. Some people probably had a heart attack, just laughing so hard at the fact that these pills got to go up her keister, right, David? 
I feel like every fourth or fifth movie in the 70s had a really good suppository gag because it was a shared experience by everybody. I mean, you figure at that time, post-Nixon, 80% of America was taking their drugs and pills through suppositories. A lot of people don't know this, David, but Coca-Cola was originally a suppository. That's why they call it the pause that refreshes, because it goes up your butt. Well, you know, it turns out that uh, cocaine was also a suppository. That's why they call it toot. Oh, very good. The more you know. So from there, let's go meet some more people on this ship. Let's meet confirmed bachelor James Martin, played by Red Buttons. Uh, he's out on the deck mall walking. I guess, I guess they're in the eye of the hurricane because five minutes ago there was a storm. And now everyone's just uh, having a good time on this cruise. While we're out on the deck, we also meet old, sweet, and curmudgeonly Jewish couple Manny and Belle Rosen, played by Jack Albertson and Shelley Winters, as they discuss their grandson named Backstory. So they talk about how they are traveling to Israel to meet their grandson for the first time who's two years old. Jack Albertson really getting typecast here, because a lot of you will know him from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where he plays Grandpa Joe. He's really getting typecast here is a grandfather who doesn't give a shit about his grandson. Because, you know, in this one, he hasn't, his grandson's two, he hasn't seen him. And in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, he only gets out of fucking bed, of course, when it, there's something in it for him. So, yeah, he, if you need a, a grandpa who's really just not giving 100%, Jack Albertson is the way to go. Jack Albertson, one of America's biggest gold bricks. While we're talking about Jack Albertson, so it's him and Shelley Winters, Manny and Belle Rose, and they're you know talking about taking a boat to Israel. And they're having a weird side conversation about uh, how much Belle loves trains. And, they, oh, they wish they could have taken a train, but... Uh, not since that last thing had happened. Mac, is this their Die Hard 2? Is there another adventure of Manny and Belle Rosen where they had an, uh, an Under Siege 2 type adventure on a train? And they're like, not this New Year's. And so they went on a boat instead. If only this movie had come out in the Netflix era, then we definitely would have gotten that prequel. And there definitely would have been a prequel, David, and it would have been uh, terrible. But yeah, they talk about this because James Martin, Red Buttons, like you just, you know, he, he definitely is like speed walking on by them. And Manny's like, there he goes again. He's as regular as the train. And then he goes, you love trains, you old bat, or something like that. Um, let's talk about red buttons here. Mm -hmm. Are we supposed to read his character as gay? That's a really good question. I'm going to say short answer, yes. I'm going to say long answer. I wonder how much of this was developed in the book. I think any audience member today would be like, that character is gay. Mm -hmm. But I don't know in the 1970s if we, if the 1970s audience was supposed to think that. Well, you know, I mean, there's hints throughout the movie where Red Buttons kind of puts it out there like, oh, I work so hard and boy, I sure wish I could take advantage of these lovely ladies, that kind of thing. Not take advantage, but you know what I mean, take advantage of the opportunity. But it's funny, I kind of paused, you know, in the middle of explaining this. I, before we did this movie, I had a little bit of time, so I watched the Poseidon Adventure remake, the 2006, adver 2006 version, Poseidon. <laughs> you almost slipped up and said 2006 aversion. Is that, uh, <laughs> that's not an accident. Okay. That has very little in common with this movie. The characters are not the same. The archetypes are not the same. They take all of the backstories out of the characters. Like the only one we get are Kurt Russell and Josh Lucas and their hero firefighters. But Richard Dreyfuss plays a gay character in that movie. And it really felt arbitrary. But now I'm wondering, you know, because they're both, you know, based on the novel by. So I wonder if that is something, if, you know, if that's a seed that's planted in the book that the scriptwriters decided to run with. Belle Rose in here when she sees Martin going by she's like that's why he runs because he's lonely okay <laughs> weird thing to say but that's okay all right anyway anyway let's go meet the main character of this movie how about it uh we're gonna go meet the fiery reverend scott 
played by Gene Hackman in prime, you can't tell me what to do form. The Reverend's being shipped out to Africa for being a giant pain in the church's ass. He's talking to the boat chaplain while he's on the boat. And he's talking to the, the chaplain's ear off about how he's sick of being kept on his knees by this unseen God character. Yeah, David, I checked IMDb and there was no listing for this character called God that they keep talking about. I, I'm guessing at this point, maybe it was somebody in the book that they just like didn't make the final cut. I figured it was like a Kevin Costner situation where they had him in the movie and then just cut him and you see like his feet or something. Oh, kind of like uh, Matthew Fox in uh, World War Z. Is that right? Yeah, he's in a couple of background shots and you're like, is that Matthew Fox? And it's like, no, I have some, I guess I watched lots more than I thought I did. I'm just seeing Matthew Fox places. <laughs> but no, it's, it's Matthew How Fox. He's in the background of World War weird. Z. There's a scene here where Gene Hackman is talking about his current situation and it he like reads his character description. <laughs> Because the chaplain says something like, oh, if you deliver sermons like that, it's a wonder you're still an ordained minister, are you? And then Reverend Scott Gene Hackman goes, the best kind, angry, rebellious, critical, a renegade, <laughs> which uh, it's like, okay, we're very, we're very confident about ourselves. So we'll see Reverend Scott throughout the movie, but let's go back to the captain's den where all the action's happening. Uh, Lenarcos is there. He's demanding that they full ahead, even though, damn it, man, they don't have enough ballast. But we learn that this is the Poseidon's last adventure. So Lenarcos, uh, the investor of a ship being retired, demands that we open her up and see what she can do. Captain Leslie Nielsen objects, but when Lenarcos threatens to have him relieved, Captain Leslie Nielsen flips over faster than the SS Poseidon. Wait, hold on a second. Wait, that was an expression back then. That's so... Oh, oh, things are becoming clear now. (laughs) What a grim expression back then. This is going to be my first markout moment. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's it's a it's a cheapy. It's a real quick one. I thought I was going to have a lot more throughout this movie, but uh, it's when Leslie Nielsen's having his actor's moment in this movie. I feel like everybody in the cast gets their moment, and this is his where he's going toe to toe with Lenarcos. Yeah, because Lenarcos is like full ahead, and Leslie Nielsen's like, "It's not safe. We're too top heavy." And so Lenarcos is like. Hey, if you don't want to do this, there's three other licensed guys on this boat who can steer this ship. And it's like, wow, that's that is some planning. Those are some contingency plans, my dude. But then Leslie Nielsen, his only real response, he's going to do it. But then he's like, you irresponsible bastard. And I was like, this is what I came here for. I came here for like just chewing scenery over the top acting. I want to see I want to see Leslie Nielsen calling somebody an irresponsible bastard. So that's going to be my first mark out moment. See, I was ready to mark out here because I was ready for Leslie Nielsen to be like, you want to replace me? Fine. Take this hat and shove it up your ass. And then this is not a good Leslie Nielsen impression. And then, you know, he, he gives him the hat. And he's like, re-staff it, Mr. Lenarcos. And then he, you know, strips off his shirt and dives off the boat because he doesn't even, even want to be in the boat. But no, David, he folds. He fucking folds. This captain sucks. You can be like, oh, it's irresponsible, whatever, all you want. You're still the guy that was like, okay, you twisted my arm. Also... If this captain says, I'm not doing this, this is not safe, and your crew is like, oh, I'll be captain now, then you're not a good, because like, I feel like if you were a good captain, your crew would stand behind you on this. And you'd be like laughing at Lenarcos, like, ha ha, just try to replace me, Lenarcos. But instead, <laughs> uh, he folds, folds like a cheap suit. Yeah, you really, I mean, this is one of those instances you cannot rely on the I told you so, because uh, you will be upside down in a boat before you have a chance to do that. So like, you really need to stand your ground and the fact that he didn't, he signed everybody's death warrant. Just how the real villain of the movie Alien was Dallas because he let in uh, John Hurt, even when Ripley was like, don't fucking do it, Dallas. This captain, he could have he could have been like, no, man, we're not fooling it. Well, actually, would that have saved a fucking thing? 
What Dallas uh, letting? No, no, <laughs> the, this one. <laughs> if, I, I guess if they had not gone full ahead, they may not have been directly where they were. They could have missed the super wave. I guess is that what's implied here? I imagine, yeah, because they're, if they're going full ahead, they don't really have time to steer out of anything precarious. You know, okay. so you know they have their lower center of gravity on them, so they can maneuver a little better through rough waters. And spoiler alert: there is a super wave coming. Mm-hmm. But not right now, because let's go to the grand ballroom. We meet flower child and groovy singer Nunny, played by Carol Lindley. That's not how she says her name. <laughs> Rehearsing with her band before the big New Year's Eve celebration while non-threatening Porter Akers, played by Roddy McDowell, watches on like a creep. But it's okay because he's non-threatening. This is really here just to introduce the characters. We really don't have to spend a lot of time on this. There is one moment that I enjoyed because Akers is giving Nani's backstory to someone who couldn't care less. Yeah, they're they're riding on this boat for free. They're trading music on New Year's Eve to to get a ride because they're on their way to this uh, to Sicily uh, for some big jazz festival. And this is the first time hearing of a Sicily jazz festival. Mac, are you aware of any sort of uh, Italian jazz? Of course I am, David. How dare you for questioning my Italian <laughs> jazz credentials? Also, at this point, I started to get sick of the wavy camera, David, because they're on a boat, mm. and so the camera never stops, kind of going whoa, whoa like like sort of up and down, back and forth. To get the idea, David, that we're rocking on ocean waves. And you know what? I don't need it. Because unless people are like falling over, you can keep the camera still. That feels like something that would have been more effective in the theater in 1972 where it's like, thrill to the queasy cam experience, that sort of thing. And like, oh, I really did throw up my guts. This is great. Yeah, maybe people were tossing their cookies in 1972, filling those uh, cineplexes with the vomit. I don't know why I said vomit. Shout out to vomit, everyone. Cash money. I can't wait to edit that and be like, that doesn't sound right. Why is it such a weird inflection? David, stop. You've now twice admitted that we edit this thing. We're just joking everything. This is all just uh, take one. Quick, David, say something racist right now so people know it's not edited. Oh, sure. Oh, my God. Oh, that was terrible. Definitely take that out. I changed my mind. But now, you know what? Let's go back to Robin. Let's check on him. He's back in his cabin. And this is where we also meet his sister, Susan, played by Pamela Sue Martin. And we learn that their parents await their arrival. Must be nice to be these two kids just riding in luxury on New Year's Eve, unaccompanied. They're probably hitting up the casino. Good for them. Yeah, having the time of their lives. We find out that Robin this whole time has been learning a lot of facts about the boat, which he will drop at opportune times, like a video game character that's like, why don't you check out that box or something like that. Cut to Reverend Scott giving a guest sermon. Okay. And it turns out this preacher thinks a little outside the box. That's right, Mac. He's hip, he's cool, and he's 42 years old at the time of this movie's release. David, you're a godless man. What did you think about this sermon? It's funny you say that. I remember this being one of the formative things into my godlessness. I remember being, you know, uh, 11 years old. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm, I'm, dead, I'm, I'm totally serious because I That's remember awesome. being like 10 or 11 and hearing this sermon and being like, yeah, God's really within ourselves. There's no beat, you know, that kind of thing. Like this, uh, this hip, cool preacher is really opening my stupid eyes. So yeah, it was odd that this kind of had an effect on me. Yeah. The point of the sermon, I guess, was to say that God doesn't want us to be passive sheep who are wearing masks when this uh, man-made pandemic, hold on, hold on, David. <laughs> back it up. No, man, back it up. no, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm quadruple vaccinated. Don't, don't think for a second. Yeah, but he's saying like God doesn't want us to just be like passive and on our knees all the time. He wants out and uh, he wants us to go out and, you know, and fight, I guess, for what we want. But it, it was kind of, it was weird, a little Trump-esque, honestly, 
when he's like, God likes winners or whatever. It's like, okay, that's so. And at some point he's like, isn't that right, Robin? Like he gives a shout out to the (laughs) kid in the crowd. David, I grew up Catholic. I'm nothing now. And that's my worst nightmare if a priest would have called on me in church. Like, hey, what did I just fucking say? I would have to jump out a stained glass window because I would have been like, no clue. Even if I was making eye contact with the whole time, I just, my brain was elsewhere. See, because I'm such an agreeable cuck that I would have just been like, you're right. And I would have been like converted at that point. You know what? That's a that's a good – I would have just been like, God's good. And they would have been like, oh, you lucked out. But yeah, we, we finish up the sermon that everybody's enjoying on New Year's Eve. And then that night, we cut to Rogo's cabin. Linda is hesitant about the New Year's Eve party. And Mr. Rogo is not capable of speaking below a yell. Uh, we get a little more of the Rogo's backstory. Turns out Linda had a past as a sex worker. And she's worried she might bump into someone she knew from Fleet Week. This scene was surprising, David, because uh, Rogo, Rogo 9, or played by Ernest Borgnine. For someone with a, you know, a large amount of toxic masculinity, maybe he's actually surprisingly not that toxic. Like, the he's like, ah, you, you don't want to go to the party because you're worried you're going to see one of your old Johns? And she's like, yes. And he's like, I don't give a shit. It's like, I, you know, fuck whoever you want. You're with me now. And it's like, whoa, geez, I, this does not feel like what I was expecting from this cop played by Ernest Borgnine. Whose voice, yeah, is at 11 the whole time. Yeah, there's something very surprisingly progressive about this. You know, he's, he's not shaming her for her past. But, you know, he's not completely blameless because at one point he's like, I arrested her six times to keep her off the streets. Like, oh, this is a romance story ripped out of the pages of Camelot. Yeah, well, she was like, why do you, uh, why'd you arrest me so much then? And he's like, well, you know, I, I wanted to just everything I could do. Uh, which, you know, that's not great behavior. <laughs> like, let's say... A cop is like, oh, I sure do like the lady that works at that coffee house. Oh, uh, boy. Oh, oh, no. She's on her phone. She's uh, swiping right on Bumble. Uh, I'm going to have to arrest her. Like, <laughs> it, I'm going to have to plant PCP on her. I'll just keep her in jail until I build up enough courage. <laughs> but you know what? It wasn't like that with Mr. Rogo and Mrs. Rogo. It's an all-American love story. Now I'm rooting for him. Sure. It's New Year's Eve night, and Nani and the No Refunds are rocking out with their Academy Award-winning hit, The Morning After. Yes. The Rosen share a dinner table with Mr. Martin, who goes over his nightly pill routine because David, pill routine, excuse me. David, he proceeds to uh, lay on the table like 40 pills in this way that like, okay, I guess we have to talk about these fucking pills because you're laying them out. And then Bell Rosen's like, what's that one pill for? It's very nice. Just like the most, the dumbest way to have small talk <laughs> about pills. But you know what? Look, if some dude's laying 60 pills and taking them one by one, I'm going to ask you about the fucking pills. See, and that's one of those, I feel like that's the movie shorthand for skirting around the homosexuality where it's like, you know, he's an oddball. He, you know, oh, he's into health food. One of those kind of, you know, one of those loaded terms, that sort of thing. And also while he's sitting around here, he's such a hit with the ladies at the table. And, you know, he's so... Woe is me about, gosh, I sure wish I, you know, I could go out with, with any number of these ladies, but uh, you know me, the life of a hat maker, because we find out he runs his own business. He's a haberdasher. Oh, these poor haberdashers hours. He's up at like 9 a.m. and he's running the store till 8 p.m. Like, what, what am I supposed to feel about this, buddy? Yeah, he's got no time for love. Not because he's uh, Dr. Nina Jones, but because he sells and makes hats, which, okay, if that's the story, that's great. But yeah, his pills that he's taking are like alfalfa pills or whatever. Mm-hmm. Back it up. The end of this movie, it said, you know, it listed the the name of the song. It was like, you know, song of the Ballad of the Poseidon or whatever, played by these people. And I saw the one in Academy Award. And I was like, what fucking song was there in the movie? Because I didn't think twice about this goddamn song, but it was enough to win the Academy Award. What? Yeah. 
it, it was back when the only rule was like play the song in its entirety and you'll be eligible because this this is such you know it's not even a showcase piece it's not even like a, hey everybody here's you know Nani and the no refunds and we focus on them it's just it's kind of playing as background music this whole time and that's all it took to win an Oscar back then you know what they took it home there's another moment here where they ask another person sitting at their table who looks like some sort of shipman and they go Mr. Tinkum what about you are you married and what does he say no but I've got a mistress. What? The sea. Uh! And then there's goddamn applause at the table. Like, this is the first joke they've ever heard. Like, oh, this is this is what humor is? I love this so much. David, full disclosure, there was applause on this side of the monitor because I also <laughs> was like, what the fuck? What kind of crazy ass line is? And then he goes, the sea. And I was like, God damn it. You got me. I thought, I thought that was very funny. That joke traveled 40 years, wait, 50 years, motherfucker, into the future where it made me laugh. Oh, gosh, happy anniversary to this movie. Okay, yeah, that's why we're doing it. 50 years old? God damn it, David. That makes me feel old. And I wasn't even bored when this movie came out. <laughs> it makes me feel bad for dunking on the lack of action. It's like, well, what do you expect? It's almost retirement age. David, the entire point of this podcast is dunk on movies with lack of action. So <laughs> you need to get that out of your system. But let's check over at the captain's table. Uh, the captain is being pulled away from Linda's dress to tend to some actual boat business. Meanwhile, we also check in on Susan and Robin sitting at the kids' table with some full of shit boat dude named the Purser, played by Byron Webster. I'm listing him because I loved his performance in this movie. Back at the wheelhouse, we find out that there's been an earthquake that is displacing water and causing gnarly waves. Let's talk about this Purser guy. He's sitting there at a different table, and he's like, do you know who the Purser is? And people are like, no, oh, you're going to tell us, aren't you? And he goes, the Purser's actually the most important man on this boat, because the boat's just a fucking boat. Everything else that you guys care about, like all the hotel stuff, all the cruise line stuff, that's what the Purser does. And right away, this Purser's going to fucking die. You just know it. Because if some like no-name character goes, I'm the most important person on this boat that's doomed, uh, James Cameron's going to find your bones later is what's going to happen. But it's Byron Webster with the No Small Parts Award for this week. It's like he comes on booming voice. Like there's even a part, you know, later on where he gets into a shouting match with Gene Hackman and it's just this booming voice off. I love him so much. Byron Webster clearly knows I'm in this movie for four minutes and I'm going to need people to like kind of hate me a little bit so i don't mind being that person it's i love it yeah he's super hateable david real quick have you been on a cruise ship i have not i have i went on one cruise ship when i was 30 years old it was a family trip i smuggled on some alcohol and i don't remember half the trip well played uh was there any days like with just awful weather on the boat where you couldn't walk around up top because uh, the rain was so bad no we got very lucky it was a gorgeous trip we never had any sort of issues so i never had like any seasickness or anything like that also it's a it's a giant boat so it's kind of like you're, you're not going to feel it unless you're very sort of in tune to the the motions of the sea the motion of the ocean interesting mm. i'll tell you what there's some moments in this in this scene or in these scenes that are just kind of confusing just the way hackman is in certain scenes he's just sort of annoying for no real reason there's a moment when roddy mcdowell uh, acres is going around you know sort of refreshing drinks and Gene Hackman's like, oh, by the way, Acres, and like kind of, you know, calls him in closer and then kind of shouts and he's like, Happy New Year. It's like, why? Why did you make that choice as an actor or as a character? This New Year's party feels very cheap. It has some of the cheapest hats I've ever seen. It's just like a, a napkin folding contest that they decided to carry over into a hat wearing contest. I can't wait for these people to die. How dare you? You love those hats and you know it. 
it does seem like, yeah, the character isn't in line with, it feels like a Gene Hackman character. The part that doesn't feel like it fits is that it's a reverend because he is one cocky son of a bitch. In fact, when the captain is called away, he's like, uh, I have to go away. Reverend, would you mind taking over as host? Which I guess he then starts being like, and uh, welcome back to the show. Where are you guys from? Yeah. But yeah, he's a real he's a real cocky son of a bitch. Also, shout out to Rogo9 here. who Every five seconds, uh, I know he, he's got a problem where he can't blink his eyes or something. <laughs> he does seem stunned about every five to ten seconds. Like something is said and he's like, what? Here's the thing, David. It's not only us who have noticed the cocksure behavior of one Mr. Reverend Scott. Oh. Susan, right? The mm-hmm. young, the older sister, but still a you know a teenager, I guess, herself. She's sitting at another table, and she's asked to dance by a genetically engineered hunk, just a very handsome man. Mm-hmm. But she almost didn't even see him at first because she's laser-focused on Hackman. Just like can't take her eyes off this dynamic man. It is a little weird. It's a little weird. Yeah, there's, um, there's a real barely legal vibe to their dynamic, and Hackman does not really seem to be shying away from it. Are you talking about the fact that he can't stop touching her later in the movie? Let's not talk about that. Um, but yeah, so we're back in the wheelhouse. They get the news about the earthquake, and they're like, oh, it's uh, some waves are coming. And they're like, hmm, yes, waves are coming. Let's, I don't like this. Like, they're not slow to react, but then once they react, they don't react. You know what I mean? Like, they take in the information, they're like, this is bad. Let's. But then the second part of like do something about it never quite clicks. (laughs) I'm concerned now, and here's how I shall express my concern. All right, go ahead. Yes, any any second now. Let's call this in. You know that kind of stuff. Just, I mean, obviously they're like, let's doom this ship. Is I think what they the unsaid part of it. But while they're dealing with all that, let's count it down. It's New Year's Eve. But then at midnight, here comes a giant wave to ruin everything. I'm going to call this an action scene, David, because it is the actual flipping of the SS Poseidon. Real quick, shout out to Rogo9 here, because, uh, you know, it's midnight, right? You got to smooch your honey. He kisses his wife, eyes open, which is wide open, which is a little weird. But anyway, cool move. Oh, is this the place where we talk about uh, creepy people in this movie kissing other people? Oh, yeah, we can. Well, then let's talk about Jack Albertson. Is this where they're doing the dance? Kind of the, you know, locked arms and yeah. swing, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess this was a New Year's Eve, New Year's Day staple, is this... you. You cross your arms and everyone else does, and you dance in a circle of old Lang Syne. I thought you just kind of waved your glass in the air like you pretended to be drunker than you are. But uh, during this dance, what does is, what is creepo Jack Albertson do? He's he's doing the dance, and he's got a pretty lady next to him, so he figures, hey, I'm a star of this movie. Let me lean in for uh, what is probably a non-consensual off-script kiss, and the lady is not having it, and Jack Albertson's just like, I got paid today anyway. So, yeah, it was it was a real creep moment. Yeah, his wife, I definitely saw, but it didn't lead to their immediate divorce. I, I don't understand. <laughs> also, there's a moment here where the uh, Captain Leslie Nielsen is in the wheelhouse, and he realizes it's Happy New Year. And what he does is he turns to the man next to him and he goes, oh, by the way, Happy New Year. Like in the most dry voice. <laughs> and both uh, him saying Happy New Year and uh, uh, Grandpa Joe getting creepy, both those things made me laugh out loud. Yeah, that was a very, that felt very naked gun. Just the, oh, by the way, Happy New Year. That was great. I must admit, these moments leading up to the wave hitting the boat, David, I did start to feel some palpable anxiety. I think it's, I, I, I wonder if knowing the fact that only a few people survived, like in the beginning, if that contributed to it. Like if I had the feeling like, oh, I think 40 or 50% or, you know, got off, 
I don't know if I would have been like, oh, here comes a death wave. But uh, who's to say? I, I definitely at this moment was like, oh, uh, like a little bit on the edge of my seat. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? Like, I mean, since this is going to be the action centerpiece of the movie, let's, you know, take a moment to give it its credit. It's an impressive piece. You know, the I guess looking at it through the lens of 2022, it doesn't seem as impressive. But like, I have to imagine 1972, you're sitting in a theater and watching a, the room of a boat turn upside down and the whole place flips. It, it, it feels really impressive, but then watching it now, it, it, it feels like something we could make. And there's something very charming about it because there's a lot of like, you know, they'll turn the camera on its side and then people sort of, you know, go from one side of the frame to the next, like, ah! and it's yeah. like, it, <laughs> it feels stupid now watching it. But in like 72, you don't feel that because this movie has kind of earned where it is so far in the movie. And I don't know, it's a, it's still an effective sequence. Yeah. I fell out of my chair, David. It was so effective. I, uh, I, th- I thought I was falling over and it worked, but that might be my own inner ear problems. But then, yes, it happens. The, the unspeakable happens. The boat flips. We are now upside down. We are in, uh, what's the tagline of this movie? Hell, upside down. That's what we were in. We're in this upside down hell. But, but thankfully, the ceiling is solid footing and not acoustic tile covering up ductwork. That's very helpful. Yes. Everyone quickly scrambles to find their loved ones and not as quickly scramble to cover up the dead. Nani also finds out she's a solo act in the worst possible way. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, dead bodies kind of strewn about that everyone seems like, well, people died. Like, they're very they're very pragmatic in this movie about the dead bodies until they aren't. Like, later on when Gene Hackman's like, let's climb this Christmas tree, there's someone's, like, dead body, like, just sprawled over the, like, the handrail, or I don't know what it is because we're upside down. But uh, and no one seems to be like, hey, let's move these things. No, there's no real, there's no palpable trauma in this uh in this episode it really is just like welp that happened time to move on to survival david as a cruise ship veteran do you think this is shock the fact that they're like oh there's a dead body there i'm not even fully processing this or do you think it's just lazy cruise ship behavior where they're like a porter will clean this up actually i wonder since it is a cruise ship if they were sort of predetermined to accept anything where it's like you're in this unfamiliar environment anything could really happen like I'm sick from just the floor rocking back and forth. So we're upside down. Yeah, same shit as always. Oh, international waters. Is that why the wave decided to strike? Because he knew he wouldn't be arrested? You fucking bitch wave. But while we're in the sequence, you know, uh, we do have a moment where Mr. Martin tries in vain to cover up the dead. He like takes off his jacket and throws it over the eyes of someone, you know, who still has their eyes open. And it's like, hang on to your coat, Mr. Martin. You're going to be covering people all day or better idea. Grab coats from the dead so that you can cover them with them. You're really on top of this this dead covering strategy. You'll be uh, you'll be indispensable the next time there's there's a boat disaster, David. Also, we are about thirty minutes into this movie and we're upside down, which I I say is pretty good, right? I feel like Titanic in the movie it took like over an hour for that boat to hit the iceberg. So the fact we're kind of hauling ass here, I, I do enjoy this pace. Uh, but yeah, Mr. Martin, no one else cares, but Mr. Martin does. What does that say about him? Good dude. Good dude. Good dude. Uh, I'll tell you who's not sympathetic, uh, the Reverend, because he's dealing with one of the ship's crew, and the ship ship's crew is like, go to the lifeboat stations. And Reverend Scott's just like, soon, very soon. And it's like, no, he's giving you advice. This isn't like his epitaph. This is, you know, you're not telling him to go toward the light. Or, you know, it's like, go towards the lifeboat stations. No, he's giving you advice to save yourselves. And Reverend Scott, he opens up this guy's shirt, and David, ah, it doesn't look like he's going to make it, because underneath that shirt, his chest is covered in red 1970s blood. And if you see that cherry red 1970s blood, David, you are a goner. <laughs> and you are enjoying this movie because goddamn it, 70s blood. Yep, love it. 
So let's move on from here. Susan has an exciting moment where she makes this tragedy about her and everyone helps her jump from a table because she's stuck on the ceiling. You know, the boat flips upside down, so she's she's stuck on the ceiling now. Then the purser finally booms in to take control of the situation. Everyone should stay put and they will be rescued any hour now. So, okay, I guess that's a good plan. But Reverend Scott says, no way, Honcho. I've got the Lord in my corner and we're going to make like a Soundgarden record and go up through the downside. I think this might have been one of the shots where you clearly see like a dead body in the background that people are like, hey, we're moving on. This is one of those scenes. It's establishing, you know, the rest of the movie. They've got to make their way out of there. Uh, the Reverend Scott presents this as though it's his idea. It's like, oh, we've got to we got to get out of here. And really, it's Martin's idea. He's just stealing glory from him. He'll do that throughout the movie. But we this is where we get the first instance of Robin's knowledge of the boat. This is where he comes in and says, hey, you know, actually, if we go upside down, you know, if, if we're heading up. It's actually really thin at that bottom part of the boat, so this is good. And I got to tell you, Robin might end up being one of my favorite characters of the movie, which is a very hard thing for a child actor to do, especially in an action movie, uh, because they always end up being like Webby from DuckTales, where they get people into more trouble. But Robin's like the anti-Webby. I love it. Oh my goodness, David. This whole episode was just a big trap, and you fucking fell for it. You were bragging about how, I don't watch the Ninja Turtles. I watch these movies when I come home. But apparently someone is so familiar with the Disney afternoon. Gotcha. You think I'd have a VCR? I taped them. (laughs) Nice draw. I see you covering your tracks now. We'll see what the uh, forensic FBI guys, when we shake down your parents, (laughs) find out about this VCR device, whatever that is. Speaking of parents, though, do you think Gene Hackman has any kids? I refuse to look it up. But if if he does, I feel bad for him because he's telling Susan to jump. And he's like, Susan, jump. Jump, Susan, jump. And she's like, I don't want to. He's like, shut up and jump. Like, he's just, he doesn't say shut up. But he's like, there's no patience there. Just, I could just picture him like being like, all right, ride a bike. Just keep your balance and ride this bike. And like, dad, Gene Hackman, my dad. But uh, I want to keep the training wheels on. And he's just like, ride it, ride it. Like, I just, he's gruff, David. He's a gruff man. I, I, I love Gene Hackman. There's, there's no denying that, but not in this movie. And I'll say it right. We're only 30, 40 minutes into this movie. He was miscast in this movie. I needed somebody with a little more compassion. Gene Hackman's great playing an anti-hero. Like, this is a year after The French Connection, where he's this piece of shit cop who gets results. It's like, now we've got a piece of shit preacher who gets results, and I don't want this. I hear what you're saying, and I think that is fair. Uh, However, I feel like so drawn to Gene Hackman (laughs) that even though he is miscast, I can't take my eyes off him. He's dazzling. Fair enough. Reverend Scott and the purse are getting to a shout-off before Scott leads a bunch of injured people into moving a Christmas tree. They're going to use the tree as a ladder to climb up through the bottom of the boat because the Christmas tree, David, is made out of metal ladder material. Thank God. Thank God it wasn't just some giant tree or assemblage of plastic. No, they can actually use this. The score during this. By the way, score by John Williams yeah. in this movie. How about uh, one of his earlier efforts. You would you would have thought this is the most thrilling scene in the movie. It's like, it's like very sweeping, very grand. Uh, and they're moving a tree. I do like this uh, Purser-Scott confrontation. I like all of it. And like you said, that actor really sells it. But at some point, Scott says to Purser, you said enough. Which is like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Purser. Purser. Ugh. But, you know, everybody's kind of... Everybody in the main cast, everybody in the 10 that we're following, uh, is kind of starting to make their plans for climbing up and getting out of there. At one point, uh, very point blank, Reverend Scott just points at Susan. And he's like, hey, you can't climb in a gown, so it'll have to come off. Like, maybe ask. Maybe like, hey, is there a contingency plan? Do you have Do you have shorts like you do? Let her try before you're like so sure that she has to take off her clothes. Ugh, weird. 
But I'll tell you what, though. Hello, Barbie convertible gown. This was... I'm going to let everyone in a little bit. This was a formative uh, look for me as a child. This was, uh, I did enjoy this quite a bit. She, however, was, uh, she planned ahead. She's like, I've, something may happen today. So she was wearing like some, some shorts there, like just some, some fun summer shorts. However, a little bit later when Linda Rogo tries to climb up and he's like, you got to take that dress off again. He, <laughs> no opportunity for her to do anything. She's like, I'm just wearing panties. Is that a problem? And he's like, no, not for me. Not an, not an exact quote from the movie, but that was the vibe. I think it was implied. I think it was just sort of in the, uh, in the captions. It was like, Ugh. I did look up the script, and there was some lines, some dialogue cut out. His character was <laughs> originally said, let's see those yam yams, is what he said. Well, I'll tell you the most compelling segment of this, you know, of the, of the preparations, is going to be the Rosens, is going to be Shelley Winters, because this is where she, she's planting her flag and saying, you know what? I want an Oscar. I want to get it from this movie. And so she's really starting to kind of have, you know, some showcase scenes. But this is also the first of many, many instances where she refers to significant necklaces from her life. Like, this is one where she's like, okay, we're not going to make it out of here. Can you just give this necklace to our grandson? You know, it's a very tender moment, but it's like, golly, we're going to be doing this a lot. And speaking of doing it a lot, she's like, there's no way I can climb up through this metal Christmas tree, which is pretty much kind of like a jungle gym. She goes, I'm, I'm too fat. I mean, it's not an exact quote, but that's what she says. And you're like, all right, that's kind of weird that we spent time worrying about this. But it comes up a lot. Her weight comes up way too much in this movie. It does. It, it's a shame because it kind of takes the place of a personality in the eyes of the script. It's infuriating because, you know, we know what we know now about body types and stuff like that. So in 1972, it was like, oh boy, what's this fat lady going to do on that Christmas tree? And it's like, she's got to be, she couldn't be more than 170 pounds. And you, meanwhile, you look at Ernest Borgnine, who's got to be easily 220, and we don't give it a second thought. So it's like, this is an unnecessary plot point that we don't need to be focusing on. It's just kind of, it's a bummer that they used it as, as a storytelling tool. Yeah. Speaking of Ernest Borgnine, his character, uh, Rogonine, anytime he says pretty much anything uh, in the presence of someone else, his wife, Linda, will, will like, you know, undercut him in front of somebody else. Like, they'll be like, hey, you want some rolls? He's like, I'll take some rolls. She's like, oh, what else is new with the rolls? And you're like, God, she's really harping on this guy. However, at this point in the movie, I now get it. Rogo Nine's energy in this movie is fucking exhausting. He just always has something to say about everything. It's like, dude, we don't always need your fucking opinion yelled at me. So the fact that his wife was like, shut the fuck up sometimes. I agree. Rogo 9, take it down a notch. But however, what, what I don't realize is the Rogo 9 Reverend Scott dynamic, I think is supposed to be driving this movie. And I did not get it at this point. I guess this is the beginning of, of their sort of uh, antagonistic or, or frenemy, I guess, relationship. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be the sort of iron sharpens iron where like, you know, we'll bring the best out of each other. But it's really rhino sharpens rhino. It's just these two hard-headed people just butting into each other at every turn. And, and it's, it's one of those moments, you know, this is one of those instances where I wish there had been a little more character development or incorporated into an arc where it, when we meet Rogo, if we establish that he's stressed out, you know, he's always going to be at 11. And so he's on this cruise to kind of relax or whatever. And so you have the diehard moments like, boy, I thought this was supposed to be a, a vacation. And now I'm trying to get out of the ship. Like there's moments that could be capitalized on, but they just go to waste in this movie sometimes. Yeah. What's he so stressed out about? You know what I mean? He's he's married to the love of his life. He he couldn't be happier about it. He's so proud of her. Oh, I guess they are a, a boat that's dying. But I mean, up until that point. 
before the boat capsides. What's he so worried about? Now, of course, he's got plenty of worry. Anyway. Anyway, uh, let's check in on Mr. Martin. Uh, he finds Nani mourning the loss of her brother, Harry Shearer from Spinal Tap, but he convinces her to press on. Meanwhile, Reverend Scott uh, gets familiar with Mrs. Rosen in order to get her up that tree. So this is a moment where, you know, Mrs. Rosen, this great big piano of a lady is trying to get up this Christmas tree and she gets stuck. So uh, Gene Hackman decides to take it upon himself to just climb under her and give her, give her a little push. It's a real handsy quality. Yeah, I guess he couldn't convince her to take off her dress, so he's got to grope her in some other way. <laughs> now I wonder why he, the, this reverend was booted off to Africa. I don't think it was because of his crazy beliefs. I think he's a bit of a dog. And by dog, I mean sex creep. Speaking of Reverend Scott, he's got one last debate with the chaplain, the sea priest from earlier, who is like, give service to the poor and the helpless. But Reverend Scott is a walking big dog t-shirt, and he says, if you ain't first, you're last. I was watching this and I was like, man, are we, um, are we trying to wrap up the character arc early? Because the chaplain, right, he's staying with these people. Uh, the rest of our, our, sort of our hero group was like, oh, I think, I think these other people are going to stay behind with the purser and do nothing and wait to get saved, you know, which means they're going to wait for their death. And, and Hackman's like, right, give me one second. I got to go try one more time. He's like, chaplain, come with me. He's, are you really staying with these people? And he's like, yeah, idiot. It's called sacrifice. I got to stay with these people because these are the people who need me. You know, my life is nothing but for the people. And you're like, wow, he's learning that this early on in the movie. I, I guess we're done here. Like it kind of felt like, but you know, he does. Have, I guess we have to wait until the very end for him to figure that out. Why well, I say figure it out, I mean like put it to use. Yeah, I, I guess. But like this movie is asking a lot of us by asking us to root for Hackman because he's such, he's such a bristly character. And in this moment, you know, this is one of the few things that I know about faith and religion is like, yeah, you look out for those who need the help. You know, you look out for those people who are injured and can't climb their way to the, you know, out of the, the ship or anything like that. This, the chaplain feels like this is his duty. This is his place. Uh-uh. We got a movie to make. It rubbed me the wrong way. I agree with you, but with a slight variation there, you're saying the movie's asking us a lot to root for Hackman. I think by casting Hackman, it was a shortcut to us for rooting for him. It's like, you're like, oh, of course you're going to root for Gene Hackman. He's Gene Hackman in a hero role. But then they're not giving us a reason to root for him. Instead, they're like, this guy, this reverend is like, he's full of decisive action. And in a disaster movie, you know, or in anything in life, when someone is like, we are doing this, and they feel very confident about it. Of course, we're drawn to that, David, because we're sheep. Okay. It's like he says in his sermon, follow me. I know what I'm doing. So right before the uh, reverend departs for the final time, he is talking with the purser and the purser is like, you know, don't do it. Don't go with them. And at some point the purser yells out, I order you people not to go. Ugh. Even if I was with the purser at that moment, I was like, I would rather sit here and wait till we get rescued. That's so embarrassing that I would have just like left. I would have been like, did he just yell, I order you people not to go? <laughs> like he's in charge of jack fucking shit. At that moment, I would have been like, let's go. Because if we stay with the purser, I'm going to make eye contact with him again. And that's going to be awkward because it's so embarrassing. But you know what? This is his last big shot in the movie to make a statement, and it made a statement on me. I just, I really liked seeing him on screen, so I'll be sad to see him go in a few minutes. But then suddenly, a bunch of explosions instantly prove Reverend Scott right. Thank God. The ballroom begins to flood, and Reverend Scott watches with delight, apparently, as people scramble unsuccessfully up the Christmas tree. Yeah, real Rorschach moment here, <laughs> where he's like... <laughs> Where he looks down and he's like, the accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up about their waist. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, save us. And I'll look down and whisper, no. 
He didn't say those exact same things, but that was the vibe I got. This was an early version of that. I got that sense. That's from a comic book, by the way, which if you're wondering why I just went on that rant, that's not me. Oh, that's not tattooed on your back? Those things can't be mutually you know, exclusive, David. <laughs> it's from a comic, and yes, it's also tattooed on my back. But golly, this scene where it's the you know the rest of the passengers struggling, you know, scrambling to make it up the tree. I don't know if you watched this with subtitles on, Mac, but the person doing the subtitles really had a field day because it was a lot of like, they were telling a story that was not in the script. It was a lot of like, Please don't leave us here to die. Help us. I, we're, you know, I'm broken in half. It was a lot of like agony just buried in the soundtrack. Yeah, this scene and also the scenes of people dying when the boat was turning upside down. I don't know if you've seen the movie Nope yet, David, but it made me think about that movie and I won't get into it for spoiler reasons. But yeah, I would say this scene is a, it was effective for, you know, kind of, you know, not a very gruesome death. I still was like, oh, those poor people. So we've been doing nine episodes of this show, and I think this is the fifth episode you've mentioned. Nope. David, is my second favorite movie of 2022. Oh, really? What was your first? Uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Very cool. Let's get through this boat, shall we? Yeah. The gang's going to make it to their first test. It's a kitchen shut off by a fire door. Uh, So let's watch out for flash fires, and that's going to be this sequence here. My question is, so everything's upside down. Well, actually, you know what? Forget that. Let's say this boat is right side up. Hackman sure knows his way around this boat. So to take everything and flip it upside down is remarkable. Like, I was thinking about this while I was watching the movie. And, like, if you were to take my home, one story plus a basement, flip it upside down, I would have a really hard time making my way through my own goddamn home. So I don't know how Gene Hackman has this knowledge base to get through this boat. Well, he does because uh, Akers and also Robin have teamed up to be his little knowledge base. But you're right. He's very confidently be like, the kitchen is here. We'll walk through this way. Like, he... He's real confident in this upside down world. When when Rogo Nine is about to go through this fiery door and he's kind of like talking to himself, he's like, I always thought I'd I'd catch a bullet, you know, some in the slums or the tenements or something will like shoot me. And it's a little bit of that cop is coming out where he's like, it's like, oh, poor people are criminals. It's basically what I hear from this guy. So I'm liking him a little less, but you know what? On we go with the movie. I can't believe a boat's going to do me in and not a Puerto Rico. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's part of what he said, that fucking guy. He's like, hey, real quick, let's rank the races. Uh, but Rogo Knight has a really great moment because Robin steps in and he's like, oh, I've got the answer to everything. You go this way and this way. And just real quick, uh, Rogo Knight just goes, Are you again? Like he almost forgot. The, like he thought the kid went somewhere else. He didn't realize the kid was going to be tagging along as part of this group of survivors. Uh, so that was kind of a great moment. But then Reverend Scott has a moment. You know, he's trying to convince the remaining 10, hey, we're going to be okay. We just got to make it here, here, here. And he singles out Mrs. Rosen, and he's like, no more Christmas trees, Mrs. Rosen, which is a, a bit of a loaded statement for two reasons. One, you know, we've we've already established the fat issues that we had with this movie and with this scene, and she, you know, getting her up the tree seemed like a Herculean feat. But also, this movie makes no bones about the fact that the Rosens are Jewish. So, like, to single her out as, uh, hey, you know, no more of those horrible Christmas trees are going to haunt you. That was a weird moment. Speaking of them being Jewish, David, this movie, this group is kind of a interesting group. Like, uh, think of the movie The Mist. Not necessarily a disaster movie, but Marsha Gay Harden's character is like, oh, this is God's punishment or something like that. I thought they were like setting that up in a weird way. Like if you had some like shitty Christian nationalist, right? You know, somebody who's like, uh, I think Jesus said that it's okay that I'm, <laughs> white people have all the money. One of those pieces of shit. If you look at this group, you have like a wayward reverend, you have a gay dude, you have a cop who married a sex worker, and then you have an old Jewish couple. 
like the fact that this sort of like you know non um gemstone family that's reference to the mighty righteous gemstones on some weird thing. I was I thought for sure that somebody would be like that it was setting up you know some shitty like retort from somebody, but nah, man, these are just the people they chose, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, there's there's something really cool about it, but there's also something very underwhelming about it in the sense that there are enough dynamics at play to where you could really have, you know, you could have one character affect the growth of another. You know, I was expecting, like you said. You know, this old Jewish couple, I figured they would have influenced the Reverend in some way, where this Reverend's kind of having, you know, his conflicts with faith and God and that sort of thing and his relationship with with the old ways versus the new. And I thought the the Rosens would kind of come in and, and anchor him in that sense, but it's it's a wasted opportunity. Hold on, David. There's a tiny asterisk by uh, where I said I think this is really cool. Let me use a magnifying glass. Oh, that's right. The cast is is all white though. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> It's a, a ragtag group of all whites. So what are you going to do? But before we leave this uh, sequence, there is a moment I just kind of want to mention real quick where Shelly Winters is, you know, or Mrs. Rosen's kind of panicking. She's like, I don't, I don't know if I've got, you know, this in me. Jack Albertson kind of shouts to her. He's like, I'll take care of you. And that caught me by surprise because I almost cried in that moment. Just wow. love and aggression combined where it's just like, you idiot, don't you know I've got your back? Like, I, I always kind of love that in a weird way. Yeah, it almost makes you forget that Mr. Rosen uh, tried to, you know, chomp that other girl's face off in the uh, New Year's <laughs> Eve sequence by giving her that smooch nobody wanted. Hey, the gang makes it all the way through the kitchen and now they're faced with going up some upside down stairs. That is weird. The hallway begins to fill up with water because they didn't Shut the fucking door. And we learned that Nani, who is still in this movie, is going to be the one who freaks out every chance they get great. So when they see that there's the stairs, they're like, you know, oh, Mrs. Rosen's like, I can't go up it or whatever. And then Mr. Rosen goes, my wife has this illusion that she thinks she's too fat. Hey, shut the fuck up. You know what I mean, <laughs> I know that feels like you're getting your wife's back. You're not. All right. Just uh, say something encouraging to her. Don't. Uh, say something negative about her to others. We're we're almost there. You know what I mean? In fact, I feel like this entire cast, they're about like six therapy sessions, four yoga classes, and like one racial sensitivity <laughs> training away from being like A-okay, just the best of the best. But just we're not quite there yet. Well, I mean, Rob, speaking of, I mean, in this moment, Robin is going to have a moment that he will have the most growth from later. Because he's also thinking he's helping. He's going to be like, oh, Mrs. Rosen, this is, you know, it's going to be no problem helping you up. I helped my dad bag a 600-pound swordfish when he was out in the ocean. And, like, you know, it's played for laughs in the moment. But then I found more satisfaction from the scene later where he's like, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean that you were a 600-pound swordfish. I was just trying to be encouraging. Like, that was the payoff for me of that moment. Yeah, Robin, besides being the movie's secret weapon, is like, wait, let me consider someone else's feelings. Oh. <laughs> How about that? So the, the gang makes it through the kitchen. Nani's going to Nani. That's fine. But the gang makes it to a crawl space. But this opening has got to be five feet by five feet. There's no way. I mean, how will Brendan Fraser and the Whale, played by Shelley Winters, make it through this crawl space? Uh, she does fine. Uh, Nani panics. They all make it through okay. After they make it through the crawl space opening, they do not shut the door afterwards, and we see water pouring in. Team, you gotta piece this thing together, okay? 
If there's a door behind you, you got to close it because here comes the water. I can't do it again. You know what I mean? The fact that you (laughs) fucked up twice now is driving me crazy. If you leave a door open for the third time, I will uh, throw my computer at the wall. Out the wall? Yeah, I have an open I have an open wall office, David. Well, you've been practicing that portal technology, too. David, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Don't tell people about my portal technology. But yeah, it's not like these are like balsa wood doors where it's just like, ah, this whole thing's futile. Why even bother closing it? No, these are meant to keep water out. You are doing yourself a favor by closing these goddamn doors. It's going to sink in or else you're going to sink in the water. Look at that wordplay. So let's go to a new set. The gang climbs up. The ladder for a giant ventilation shaft? Okay. Thankfully, this is before the era of ladders with dedicated footholds. So the Acres is going to be the first of the final ten to go falling into some water and I guess drowning. He's gone. And Nani comes real close to being the second. Yeah, so they're climbing up this uh, whatever it is. The They call it Broadway, right? Is that what it is? Because the shaft that runs the length of the ship. Acres ah, falls into the water and then just dies instantly? What happened to him? I was I was wondering if the water was like scalding hot or something, but no, he just falls and it feels like it feels like he was ready to give up. There's actually a lot of the deaths in this movie toward the end feel like a lot of people just giving up. And this is just one like the writer in this instance feels like he was giving up on acres. Yeah, I feel like a lot of deaths are like uh, like Mario deaths where like you touch the wall, uh, lava or something like boot and then like you rotate in a circle and get smaller until you disappear. <laughs> is that how Mario died? Maybe. I've, Sure. And again, I don't remember what happens here, but there's one more talk about being uh, Mrs. Rosen being overweight because I wrote in my notes, all caps, cool it with the fat talk. Yeah, I think she was concerned about like, oh, if I'm up this ladder, I'm going to bend it or something. Yeah. yeah, it's just we're we've we've exhausted this thing already. Yeah. And I guess this was an action scene. I feel like in any other movie, this would have been played up more. The fact that they're climbing and now water is climbing after them. I really didn't feel very tense until Akers uh, bought the farm. Yeah. I get the sense that the makers of the Poseidon remake watched the Poseidon Adventure and is like, you know, add some music and add some camera angles. And this is an action movie, but like there's a lot of action stuff in this movie, but it's just presented so limply that it doesn't come off as an action feel. Yeah, I guess the premise, they were expecting that to do all of the, the heavy lifting here, like just the fact that they're upside down. I guess the audience would probably be in 1972 when this movie came out. I imagine every 10 minutes they'll be like, they're upside down! Like, just like <laughs> screaming that in their seats. Like, but what are they going to do? Like, it just, I, you know, and I don't blame them. It's a, it's a tense situation, David. So now what are we, we're down to nine. Yeah, uh, the remaining nine are going to make it out of the ventilation shaft, thank goodness. And they're going to see some g- 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 ghosts. Oh, wait, it's just a bunch of survivors headed for the bow. But that's not the way our gang is going. We're headed for the engine room. So we also get a moment where the Rev blames uh, Rogo for the death of Acres uh, for some goddamn reason. And they almost come to blows while devising their next move. Yeah, the Reverend is really shitty to Rogo 9 here. He's like, why didn't you save Acres? And he's like, he fucking fell. And he's like, I promised to get everyone out and you let him die. And he's like, what do you want from me? At this moment, I'm like, oh boy, the Reverend is, uh, he's, he's, he's losing it, man. Yeah, I don't love this scene, but I love this scene because this is... You know, on paper, it's Hackman versus Borgnine. Like, this is action. They're just jawing at each other. You know, they're at their wit's end. We're, you know, we've lost our first person. I want to like this. I do like this, but it's not enough to buoy the movie, if that makes sense. Yes, and I appreciate the nautical pun of the use of the word buoy. <laughs> but David, this is the tipping point. How about that? Uh, because up until this moment... Hackman has been shitting all over Borgnine, and Borgnine has been begrudgingly following him. 
But now after this scene, Borgnine's pushing back a lot on Hackman. Also, you say good, good ghost. Yeah. So they, they look up and the other survivors are like walking by in a different room wearing their pajamas or something. And it's like dark and quiet. It is fucking creepy when they do it. So uh, this scene works. Yeah, it's an image that has stayed with me since I was a child. I remember watching this as a child thinking, why are they ghosts? But no, I, I was glad I got to watch it this time and correct that. So the Rev heads off to find further passage to the engine room, which is where they want to escape. While everyone looks for snacks and supplies, busy work. Susan decides to follow along and leave her brother behind? Okay. Meanwhile, the Rosens find time for Shelly Winters to pad that Oscar reel. Also, Nani's gonna Nani. Yeah, Nani has a little breakdown with uh, Mr. Martin in a barbershop that's upside down. And she's like, my brother used to have such beautiful hair. Did you love his hair? Did you notice his hair and love it? It's like, Nani, you gotta go. We, no, Nani's got time for this. You know what I mean? Susan and the Rev have a tender moment. Yeah, the Rev is looking around and he's like, Susan, what are you doing here? And she's like, I, I want to go with you. I want to help you. And he's just like, us, Susan, we're going to get through this together. It's like. This is, you would think it's the middle of Gone with the Wind, the way he's just like, stick with me, Susan. We're going to be all right. Susan, bring your breasts over here. Rub them against my <laughs> chest, Susan. There is, I, I'm getting so close. I think I say it coming up, but I, I, I'm coming so close to reading this book. I want to know the backstories. I want to know what was taken out. Oof. I really kind of want to, yeah. I looked up a little bit. Some things were cut from this book that were probably good. And then I think Robin might die in the book. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's something. But you know what? Uh, read that book. Let me know. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot missing. In fact, watching the Rosens in this scene, because they have another moment while everybody's scouring for supplies, Shelly Winter's going to pad that resume. She's going to have another moment of, I'm not going to make it when you see our grandson, that kind of thing. And it's very clear that the Rosens are the only heart of this movie. They're the only people with, stakes that we can gravitate towards like they have a reason to get out of this boat everyone is just kind of getting out of this boat for survival but they want something at the end of this okay that's that that's kind of why this movie isn't working for me maybe it's like you're you're asking this couple to be the heart of this movie when it's such a big movie and a grand movie meanwhile the lead is kind of like the draymond green of this movie where he's like great but he also can't wait to tell you about it to the point where it's exhausting and you never want to see him do anything good again yeah, and uh, if your team is playing against the Reverend, you fucking hate him. But he's probably an indispensable part of that championship team. But yeah, the everyone else is just clawing like rats trying to get out of this thing, and the, the Rosens wanted to see their uh, beautiful little two-year-old grandson. But Rogo is tired of waiting for the Rev to come back because, you know, the Rev's gone on. He wants to find the engine room. So Rogo begins gathering everyone to head to the bow. This is the plan. You know, we're going to follow those ghosts. We're going to go the other way. But then here comes Susan. She tearfully returns, and the gang discusses whether to leave the Rev's carcass behind, because she's like, he said to wait five minutes, and he never came back, and so he said to do it your way, Rogo, and we're going to go. So they're discussing whether to leave the Rev's carcass behind to get bloated with ocean water, but then here comes the Rev, 30 seconds behind Susan. He found the engine room after all, but now they've lost Robin. So Susan leads the gang on ahead while the Rev goes to retrieve Robin from the John. He was in the bathroom all along because he had to piss. Why couldn't you piss anywhere, Robin, you fucking idiot? <laughs> yes. Okay. So like, yeah, God help us for breaking this down. So if it's number one, you could have gone anywhere at any time. You're on a boat. It's covered with water. If you have to two, I get wanting to go in a dedicated space. You had it kind of out of the way. But do you have to go into an upside down bathroom that feels a little too ocd if you know what i mean 
Well, he was, you know, he's very obsessed with the boat. Maybe he's a little bit, um, he, maybe he's on the the shit spectrum here because he 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 had to had to go in a certain place. Yeah, but the, but this whole this moment does not work for me. It's Susan running back to tell the group, "I waited, and and the rev didn't make it." And then the rev shows up like right behind her. Like, did the rev suddenly become allergic to shouting? Could he not just be like, "So that." Susan, I'm right behind you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't don't have this dramatic moment. Like it's it didn't work for me. I think they cut a scene where there's like there's alligators in the boat or something. <laughs> so the Rev is super proud to show everyone the path to the engine room that he found, but when they go back, it's now flooded. So I guess we are swimming. It's another sort of action scene we're gonna call the long swim. Thankfully, Mrs. Rosen pulls out a necklace proving that she's a former swimming champion and has the medal to prove it in her Mr. T necklace collection. Unfortunately, she's a woman, David. You cannot be trusted, right, to do anything right. So the Rev opts to go instead. Yeah, like she's wearing a medal that she's had for 30 years or something like that because she got this when she was 19. She's holding on to this as though it is an important piece of information and the Rev just dismisses. He's like, I got this. I can hold my breath. I breathe all the time and like just completely disregards her. I felt a little tricked by the movie at this point because they realize like, okay, the door's underwater. We're going to have to swim for it. And Mrs. Rosen's like, please, everyone listen to me. Please, I beg you, before we do this, please. And I'm like, oh, here she, she's going to say like, please don't do this or you cannot hold your breath for very long. It's suicide. Let me do it. I'm a swim champion. And I was like, oh, I was thinking she was going to um, call timeout because uh, she's scared, but instead she's calling timeout because she's so brave she wants to contribute. And I was like, I feel like that the movie set that up for me to think that because they've been shitting on her since the uh, movie started. So the fact that she's like a swimming champion here, I was like, oh, okay, cool, I guess. Yeah, And I'm not to say, I'm not trying to say that Sterling Siliphant, the writer of this movie, doesn't know how to write a movie. I mean, but this one, it's, yeah, exactly. Like this is supposed to be her, her redemptive moment, you know, because the movie wants us to feel like she's dead weight. You know, oh, she's been a hindrance. You know, if we just if we lost this flotsam, you know, we could get to safety a lot quicker. But she's not. She's not a hindrance. She's been great every step of the way. She feels compelled to want to help out in this moment. But she she's not working from a deficit here. Yeah, and it's a weird kind of uh, up and down with this character. That is faux show. But uh, thank goodness we get some more uh, rev touching. He's touching people's heads. He's touching people's faces. He's just really having a, a buffet. Mrs. Rosen, Susan, calm down. Put my hands in your mouth. So let's follow the Rev. Let's follow him underwater. He's trying to swim to the engine room, uh, and he gets stuck under a, a, a falling piece of metal. So R.I.P. Rev, right? No, because Mrs. Rosen hulks out and goes to save the day. She rescues the Rev, and that will be her final good deed. R.I.P. Bell Rosen. We are down to eight. Yeah, she has the world's uh, quickest heart attack. And then the moment when she dies, I think she pretty much just goes, I'm out. Like, it just happens. <laughs> so like, oh, 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 I'm gone. Like, it just is so fast. Yeah, it was it was a Bill Swirsky super fan heart attack. It was like pounding on the chest, kind of yeah. like trying to get the sausage out. Bullish. Yeah, she definitely had some bullish sausage <laughs> clogged in her arteries, I guess. But yeah, R.A.P. Mrs. Rosen. We hardly knew ye. So, you know... This is this is not going to be a mark out moment for me, but it is a hell yeah moment for me because, again, the movie wants us to feel like Mrs. Rosen is this, you know, sad sack. She's a waste. She's not being helpful. But in fact, she's very helpful. But this is her moment to be like, 
you know what? I'm I'm swimming for this one. I'm doing it. So when she jumps in, I kind of had a hell yeah. But I'll tell you what, you know what? I'm going to make this a markout moment. Oh. uh, This is going to be like an honorary markout moment for Shelley Winters uh, for putting up with this movie and putting up with her treatment in this movie and just having a moment where she has her own hero's moment. Making not a markout moment a markout moment. The fix is in. Who's my podcast co-host? The uh, World Cup Selection Committee. <laughs> What's going on here? That's a reference to Qatar getting the games when they certainly didn't deserve it. But seriously, David, the, she was kind of like uh, shit on this whole movie. And so her hero turn being such a surprise. Was that what that was supposed to be? Like, the last person I would expect to do this is Mrs. Rosen. I don't know. But the fact that she, it's not like she just dove in and did it and then later revealed that she was a swimming champion. She begged us for four or five minutes to let her in because she was swimming champion. I think that kind of undercut what I feel like was supposed to be like a, a surprising hero turn. Yeah. You know, it makes sense now in hindsight, why they were spending so much time on her weight and being fat, that sort of thing, because it is supposed to be, you're supposed to be sitting in that audience in 1972 being like, wow, I didn't know anybody could move like that. Yeah. You don't need to lay on that thing. It's like that, uh, that book movie series isn't called like Diary of a Wimpy Shitty Kid Who No One Likes and He's Fucking Stupid. Everyone hates him. He's a complete, he'll never amount to anything good ever. It's like, okay, we get it. He's gonna surprise us. Mike Rogo's like, what's taking so long? And he falls a rope through the water, and the Rev lets him in on Mrs. Rosen's death. Mike goes back and corrals the other, and of course Nani's gonna nanny, but here comes Mr. Martin to save her again. Man, if they get out of this water, he better cash that in, you know what I mean? But he's not. Meanwhile, the Rev sees a valve. Oh, there's a door behind that valve, but the valve is also good to know, I guess. I was confused by this. Yeah, cuz you know, there's a we see a POV of uh, Reverend Scott looking up and he sees, "Oh, that's going to be the door to the engine room. It's it's on the way out." But in front of it there's this giant red valve. It's like, "Okay, I guess we're supposed to ignore that, but we don't need to ignore it because it's going to come into uh, factor in a few mere moments." Yeah, so Rogo, he comes through the water and he, and he finds uh, the Reverend and Mrs. Rosen. No, a corpse. And he's like, what happened? And the reverend's like, Mrs. Rogo made it through. She saved me. Or not Mrs. Rogo, excuse me. Mrs. Rosen made it through. And then Rogo turns, he's like, good job, Mrs. Rosen. Gosh, she's dead. Which it's like, why did you let me talk to a corpse? Why wasn't that the first thing you said? Like, how'd you make it through? Mrs. Rosen's dead. When uh, Rogo goes back to corral everyone, uh, Mr. Rosen's like, what, what happened? What happened? And he's like, everything's fine. Uh, sort of. And he's like, what does that mean? And it's like, Mrs. Rosen... She made it through, we'll just say. And it's like, man, the fact that Rogo could not break it to Mr. Rosen, that his wife died. Right there, that was a moment to lead. And he kind of chose the, we'll talk about it later, kind of uh, way to go. Strike against Rogo. Well, you know, especially he's the cop. If anyone is more skilled at presenting this news to somebody else, it should be him. In fact, now, I'm, now that I'm saying that, I want that to be his character development where it's like, oh, you know, I'm Al Powell, I shot a kid, I need to get over it or whatever. It's like, oh, I hated giving bad news to people when I was a cop. Let me learn how to do that. I'm surprised when he saw uh, Mrs. Rosen's dead body, he didn't try to plant some evidence on it real quick. (laughs) He's like, all right, Reverend, let's get our story straight. She had a gun. It's the only way I know how. But uh, Rogo 9 has a really great moment. Again, another good moment with uh, with Robin, because Robin's just, you know, looking for an opportunity to show off. And he's like, I can swim three lengths of the pool without taking a breath. My sister can only swim two. And Rogo Nine couldn't care less. He's just like, okay, kid. And I laughed. At <laughs> all right, all right, shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh, when my three-year-old <laughs> tells me some things that, um, you know, are not um, things that needed to be told, I, my response, I go, that's very interesting. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> so that's, 
I, I recognize that, except I do it nicely. But golly, we have one more scene with Nani here where she just gives up. Everybody's going in the water, following the rope, making it to the engine room. And Nani's just like, I'm, I'm going to stay here. Um, why, do, why don't we just stay behind? Like, she's trying to plead with Mr. Martin. It's like, we could stay behind. Like, she wants to start a life there. Like, yeah, we could, uh, you know, take out a loan. We can get a small little place around here and we could just stay here and uh, grow some plants. Like, what is your plan here? Jesus, Nani. But Martin's like, all right, I'll stay with you if that's what you want. And she's like, well, you, you're going to stay with me and die with me? And he's like, yeah, I'm that nice. And she's like, fine, we'll fucking go. Which, I mean, Martin, you know, he's the unspoken hero in this movie. He's just, he's got a huge heart. But at the same time, I, I think his life kind of sucks because the fact that he's like, no, yeah, I'll, I'll die for some stranger instead of getting back to my hat shop that I own. <laughs> God, I would like to have had like a, you know, where are they now after the credits where it's like, Mr. Martin burned that hat shop to the ground, collected the insurance money and moved back to Athens. He went to Sturgis. That'd be tight. The Rev is so excited about the door that there's no time to mourn, okay? He even gets Mr. Rosen to wrap it up early. <laughs> yeah, like, Mr. Rosen's having his moment to say goodbye to his wife. He, you know, I don't really get the sense that he's torn as far as, like, I, I can't go on, this is too much for me. But Reverend Scott sort of uh, infers that. He's like, she wouldn't have wanted you to go on. She wants you to, you know take this necklace to, to your grandson, you know? And so finally Mr. Rose is like, all right, all right. I only just say my goodbyes. And in a moment of compassion, Reverend Scott says, you've got one minute. It's like, I'm begging you movie, please. A moment of humanity from this clown. Yeah. Again, I don't think the reasons he gave for being shipped off for the church, shipping him off to, uh, I guess a mission in Africa. I don't think those are the real reasons. I think this guy might be an asshole, but from there, yeah, wrap it up, Mr. Rosen. We got to get, we've got, we're a catwalk away from the final door. Uh, so this is going to be the thrilling catwalk to the door sequence. So thrilling, John Williams decides to sit a lot of it out. Uh, it's just dead silence for a lot of this. And the movie decides that eight is too many to survive. So adios, Linda, all of a sudden. And around the final turn, here comes Ernie Borgnine in the Oscar Derby. All right, at this point, I, th I think we're in the engine room, right? We're... I believe so. Okay, yes. if not, we're almost there. And so that that's where they're headed because Robin at some point says that, hey, in the engine room, that is where the, first of all, it's going to be at, at the bottom, which will be now the top of the ship. And also it is where the outer hull of the ship is the thinnest. And so if they want to rescue us, that is where they will come. And of course, this happens exactly as predicted later. But yeah, it seems like they're going to make it. And then for no fucking reason, Linda dies. I thought this was really cruel to kill Linda. You know, she falls down into some fire and I guess she hits her head on something. And then uh, Borgo Nine is like, Linda, no, just really grabbing for that Oscar, as he said. Uh, and then we cut to Linda's body, which does seem like it is on fire. And I was like, God, why did we have to kill Linda this way? It just feels, I don't know, a little cruel. And of course, Borgo Nine blames the Reverend for Linda's death. He's like, you killed her. Yeah. I mean, who else are you going to blame shit? Because like, it, it really is. You're absolutely right. It is a cruel death because we never got any indication that she's inept, that she's, you know, careless or anything like that. Like, I hate to be this person, but that really should have been Nani. Yeah, Nani definitely should have gone. I think if they voted, they would have shoved Nani off. But we get some more explosions. This time, one knocks some steam loose. That steam is going to be so hot, it's going to block the door to their exit. Reverend! That steam is super hot, I think is what Robin says. <laughs> that hot steam is blocking the door or something like that, yeah. Again, the video game character that <laughs> comes and explains to you <laughs> what your character needs to do. You need to power up. Open up this trash can and eat that whole turkey. Yeah. <laughs> Find all the Joker bombs. 
So the Rev decides to give himself up and shut off the valve and turn the steam, blocking the door. Hackman yells at the true, unseen enemy of the movie, the cruel god that would do this to them. Meanwhile, Hackman tries to rally down the final stretch of the Oscar Derby, but we simply do not like him enough to feel anything. So he bails out of this movie and we're down to six. So yeah, he decides that he is going to turn this valve to shut off the steam, which why are we so sure that that is what it does? I no idea. I don't know, but that's, that's what's happening. As he does this, he's, you know, he's hanging by the valve. He's not like, you know, he's not standing on anything. And he is yelling like, God, haven't we done enough? I didn't ask for your help, but I didn't ask you to hurt us more. Why'd you do this? Look, I loved that he was yelling at God. I fucking loved it. I had a mark out moment. I was like, hell yeah, you yell at that God. <laughs> but if you're about to die, now would be the time to be like, God, I'm like repent or something, right? If you're religious, now's not the time to be like, fuck you, choke on my dick. Like, you know, it's like, I don't, you probably want to get on God's good side if you're about to meet them right you know it's one or the other i think if you've been through this yeah you're either going to be penitent and be like all right accept me lord or you're going to be like from hell's heart i stab at thee i i feel either way about this but this was a he was a one-way ticket because he could jump over and reach this valve but he could not jump back so he had just enough energy to like turn around and talk to him a little bit while he i hung there before his arms gave out and he he falls and he's like rogo it's up to you now rogo you have to lead them and rogo he's not even registering this. He's barely alive at this moment because his, his soul basically died with Linda. Hackman lets go and he falls to his death where I guess he dies instantly like Mario. Because there's no like staring down at his body or him going like, ow, he just might as well have fallen to other worlds like, you know, longest hole or something like that. <laughs> my legs. <laughs> I'm still alive, but my legs. Yeah, it's it's a it's a curious choice. He's like, I know I'll inspire them by dying in front of them. It's like, Rogo, Rogo, look at me. Look at me. I'm going to do this. And he's gone. And so it's like, I hope that helped. But uh, it does help. It helped Mr. Martin. Uh, it rallied him. And so he's going to rally Rogo. And he's like, Rogo, you got to lead us to safety for some reason. I don't know why you have to be in charge. Maybe Mike could use the pick-me-up of responsibility, let's assume. So Rogo opens the door to the engine room where the steel is only one inch thick, like we were told. Thankfully, the rescue team also knows this because they're on the outside of the boat. And they managed to trade clangs of acknowledgement through the steel. The gang is like, clang, 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 clang. Then the people outside are like, clang, 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 clang. That's how we know everything's safe. That's how we know the gang of six is saved. Martin here, Mr. Martin, deploys an unorthodox strategy. He's like, what's the best way to motivate a man who was widowed not five minutes ago? By telling him he's a complete piece of shit. He's like, all you do is destroy things. You're nothing but a pain in the ass. Everyone fucking hates you. Now is your moment to do one good thing. And he's like, yes, I will do it. I will lead these people six feet in one direction. We're saved. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's, I guess Gene Hackman's contract would not let him die earlier in the movie. But it, it feels weird. Like, oh, here's Rogo's moment. And now it's over or something. Yeah, we've, we've taken this 99 yards and Rogo's going to punch it in for the end zone. But yeah, sure enough, we see the sparks of a blowtorch start cutting through the boat because the, the rescue crew is here. Yeah, and Rogo's celebrating. He's like, you beautiful son of a bitch, you were right. And he means the Reverend, but really, he should mean Robin. Because way back at the beginning of this movie, Robin was the one who told us that steel is only an inch thick. So I, I better see Robin uh, getting a medal at the end of this. So I guess the, the Greek rescue team is like, you know, are you hurt or how many are you or whatever? And then somebody goes, oh, did you save anybody in the bow of the ship? The rescue team guy goes, no. Like, very matter of fact, like, no. <laughs> no, we sure did not. 
I mean, I feel I feel a little bad for the Greek rescue team because it's almost like their job depends on it. It's like, all right, there was 600 passengers on that ship. The over-under is 50. You better come back with a good number of survivors. So for them to see six, it's like, uh, we're getting fired. This sucks. I was looking down, I guess, taking a note because when I, when I was watching the movie, I thought um, the Greek rescue team was like, did you save anyone else? Like, to them. I was like, whoa, what a fucking presumptuous question. I'm sorry we weren't good enough for you surviving a crazy boat accident. But I rewound and I was like, oh, they asked that of the, the rescue team. Oh, I thought they were asking it of the survivors. <laughs> That's what my, my Oh, maybe they was did. Like, oh, now I'm confused. I thought, yeah. Yeah, they were like, did you save anyone else? They were asking this. Yeah, were you? did you manage to corral anybody else? No, that was a shitty thing to ask them. Uh, I like how I'm confused on the final light of this movie. I think that's something I'd want to pay attention to. Any regard, that's the end of the movie. And sure enough, like the, the prophecy of the opening credits foretold, only a small handful of characters survived. The Poseidon Adventure! All right, David, how many markout moments did you end up with? I had two, and I think it's very telling that they're both character moments and not action moments. This was, you know, for all of the criticism I had of, of had of this movie and this script, this movie did a decent job of character moments at times, and I, those were my markouts. I had one. I thought I was going to finish this movie with uh, zero, but I did not expect uh, Gene Hackman to yell at his creator to go kick rocks. That was pretty cool. David, now I have to ask you the question, is this someone's favorite movie? I have to imagine so. I couldn't tell you who. I couldn't break it down specifically. I think I'd have to triangulate an age range. Like maybe someone was six years old when this movie came out. And this, you know, I could see this sticking with a six year old, or I could see this sticking with like a little kid. But as time wears on, maybe, you know, if they didn't watch this movie over and over again, this would still kind of stay fond in their hearts. Yeah, I could see someone experiencing this in the theater and being like, wow, what a spectacle. Like I really felt like I was on that boat. So yeah, I definitely feel like. Someone could have had such a fun time seeing us in the theater that it was a treasured memory and a treasured movie. So I'll say, yeah, I bet this was someone's favorite movie. All right, David, punch-ups. How would you fix this movie, David? How'd you punch it up? The easiest fix for me, the thing that's going to maximize my enjoyment of this movie, give Nani a growth arc. Because if she is the scaredy cat of this movie, then you're setting yourself up for a moment of redemption at the end where you're proud of her where she steals herself, where she has the courage, where she makes it through, and you're like, hell yeah, Nani. But we never have that moment with her. We just end up hating her guts through the whole thing. Yeah, she's a hippy-dippy, groovy flower child musician, right? So what does she love, David? Drugs. And at the end of the movie, one of the rescue people is like, hey, uh, that must have been stressful. You want to get high with me? And she looks at the camera and goes, no, I'm done with that. Time to live. And there we go. She kicked it. That would have been great. That's pretty good. I like that. Also... Okay, this is going to be a hard sell. I say a longer movie. And oh, I mean, hard pass, hard pass. Well, I mean, that in the, <laughs> I mean that in the sense of let's swing for all the awards fences. Let's write for everybody. Everybody gets a big Oscar moment. Like, let's bring John Williams in. Let's have him score the crap out of it. You know, let's write the crap out of it. Let's try to make this big. Or, you know, since there were moments where I'm watching Ernest Borgnine and I'm watching Gene Hackman and I'm like, I love these actors. I love watching them together. I wish I wasn't watching them in a movie where they're yelling at each other the whole time. So maybe take this 10, take the cast and put them somewhere else. Maybe like a New Year's Eve heist, maybe an Ocean's 10. I would like to see them have fun in that movie. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen some action in this action movie. And I feel like the sequences, there's some real potential there, but they 
the deaths kind of like seemed to come out of nowhere. There was no like, we're racing against the clock. We're barely, I mean, like the whole movie, they are barely surviving. And it's just because things are so difficult. It would have been, I guess, more effective as an action movie if those uh, set pieces where they barely survive, it's because like, oh, this, you know, the water's filling up. Like, we got to get out here right now. Like, you know, basically setting up levels for them to pass, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I had a thought about Rogo 9 versus Hackman. And I want to talk to you about it because what if that was played up more? What if they even like came to blows or something like that? It, it was more of a philosophical difference. And I kind of was like, wait, am I describing Titanic? Not not so much in that you have these like uh, two characters who are you rooting for, Crimson Tide situation. More just like you're trying to escape this boat, but now you're also dealing with someone trying to kill you, like like your friend Billy Zane. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, you know what? We, we get that in other movies. Like uh, movies all the time where it's like, we got to get out the ship. It's like, no, we got to fight first. And it's kind of exhausting. So I think maybe I liked it that they did not... The, the Rogo 9 versus Reverend Scott stuff that happened, it didn't really slow down their progress too much. Like, they weren't like, oh, you idiot, stop arguing and get out of here. There's nothing that they're arguing like cost them. So I guess I will not punch that up. I, I you know, I like the dynamic when it's all said and done, but it's also, it's not my favorite flavor. Like, I think I like when you have people who are on opposite sides, but they both have the same goal and they work together. I think that's, that's more my speed. And I think I would have preferred to see a dimension where that happens, but... I'm not going to hold this movie to it. Okay, David, if you wouldn't mind accompanying me into Punch Mountain Video Store, the all-action movie video store, watch your step. There is a dead body there. Uh, we have three copies of this movie. We splurged. Now, this is an all-action movie video store, David. So what subsections would you stock this movie in? Okay, the first copy is going in disaster movies. I think that's a slam dunk. That makes sense. That'll be a section that gets populated a lot as this goes on. Uh, 70s action. You know, we had it last week with the driver... There's just, and again, I said I said it last week, where 70s action will probably be my favorite subsection of this video store. There's just a feel to 70s movies, even though this one doesn't particularly work on a lot of levels, especially as an action movie. It's still an enjoyable time. I still really enjoyed the heck out of this two-hour movie. And so my third copy is going to go, this is going to be splitting hairs. And I feel like I do this every week. I feel like I have two that are on the money and a third one that just sucks. Uh, so this third one... <laughs> It's not called Confidence third- Mountain, everyone, okay? <laughs> uh, the third one's going to go in survival action, which I think is a bit different than disaster. I think it's it's kind of a, you know, all squares or rectangles sort of thing, where I think all disaster movies are going to be a survival-type movie, but not all survival movies are going to be disaster movies. You know, that's interesting, because I did not consider this until you were reading the back of the box, but it refers to it as an escape movie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's a, you know, I've never heard that term before, an escape movie. I mean, I've definitely heard sort of like a survivor movie, but I think that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I would also, you know, maybe be like, if there's a section in the video store called like, more like adventure, action adventure with adventure underlined, I would put it in that one. Because that way we can enjoy it without, um, you know, someone getting punched in the throat. Okay, David, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. Uh, your mom, my mom, everyone has been waiting for this. It's where does the Poseidon Adventure fall on Punch Mountain? Now, David, the current rankings, of course, uh, at the top is Raid 2, The Matrix, and Prey. And at the bottom, the uh, sign that says Punch Mountain this way is the movie Chappie. Not even in the actual uh, uh, mountain limits. Uh, this one's going low for me. Um, no fault of the movie. I, like I said, this is an entertaining movie. It was a it was a fun use of two hours. 
it's just not going to make it that high on the mountain. I probably put it um, somewhere in the neighborhood below Charlie's Angels. Yeah, I mean, again, if I was ranking movies, this thing was solid, man. And it was super enjoyable to watch. Um, so if I was ranking, like, this is a ranking of movies, I would definitely put it towards the top. But I, I think it's lack of action would probably hurt it with the mountain. Oh, my goodness, David. The rocks are falling, tumbling to the ground. A boulder just <laughs> crushed a young Robin-esque boy. And uh, <laughs> golden letters are appearing. We now see that Poseidon Adventure is right below Deadly Prey. Whoa! Which is crazy. <laughs> But again, in terms of an action movie, it can't quite get over Dudley Prey, even though it is 30 times the better movie. Oh, Punch Mountain. What a mountain to be alive on. That is so wild because I thought the gap between Dudley Prey and Chappie is so thin, it would be so hard to fit something in there. But Poseidon Adventure makes sense. Like you said, it's a fun movie. It's, you know, it was nominated for Oscars, for Christ's sakes. But like, Dudley Prey has more action. <laughs> But here's the thing, and we might need to actually release our Chappie test episode. Chappie is not the worst action movie of all time. I don't want people to think no. that that we even are like, you know, because we're going, because we started this thing like Matrix to Chappie or Raid 2 to Chappie is, is the current uh, ranking scale. It's not like we're putting out that Chappie is the worst action movie of all time. It's just that is our current uh, lowest ranking thing because the worst action movies of all time, we're not going to watch them on this podcast. The point of this mm -hmm. podcast is not to watch stuff we hate and dunk on it. The point of the podcast is to watch stuff we think is fun and don't got it. No, but to have fun with it. <laughs> so we're not going to, life is short. We don't want to waste time like talking about stuff we hate. All that we want to, we want to have fun and enjoy things. So the reason why Chappie's is going to stay towards the bottom is I did not enjoy it. Whereas <laughs> Deadly Prey, uh, it took some turns, but I, for the most part, when I was watching the movie, I enjoyed it. And Poseidon Adventure, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, but yeah. yeah, as an action movie, you got to give it up to Deadly Prey. Okay, that's a that's a good list. So the current Punch Mountain rankings are Raid 2, The Matrix, Prey, Hard Target, The Rock, Cliffhanger, The Driver, Charlie's Angels 2019, Deadly Prey, Poseidon Adventure, and Chappie. What a great goddamn list. Seriously. What a crazy list. <laughs> <laughs> Punch Mountain, man. It does what it does. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a cruel mistress. I have another mistress, David. The Mountain. Yay! The Mountain. Oh, David, do you hear that horn? Uh, that car horn? Yeah, I got to go. My ride's here. David, that's not a horn calling you to for your ride. That's calling us to action, David. On this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. And this month, David, we're spotlighting Austin Mutual Aid. Austin Mutual Aid is a grassroots organization whose mission is to redistribute supplies, food, and more to those in need. Colder temperatures are upon us, which is a very dangerous time for Austin's unhoused population, and groups like AMA work to keep people safe. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to Austin Mutual Aid. Also, for every review we get on iTunes, we'll add $1 to our donation. That's the only platform I'm checking right now. If you left a review on another one, definitely let me know, and we'll be adding to that donation up to a certain amount, of course, just in case any bots out there wanting to empty our pockets. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll definitely read it on air because we are shallow. For more information on Austin Mutual Aid or to donate directly to them, visit austinmutualaid.org. Disclosure, I live in Austin, Texas, but for listeners who live elsewhere, I encourage you to seek out mutual aid groups local to your communities for opportunities to donate or volunteer. Folks, that'll do it for the Poseidon Adventure, and that'll do it for 2022. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain, or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. 
next week from the year 2000 and directed by David Tui. We're watching Pitch Black. Mac, you excited? Vin Diesel, hell yeah. Hell yeah. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.